Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here is MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. And as we're taping this, we've watched two, I think, really exciting wildcard games, and we're looking ahead to the Division Series. So that's what we're going to do on the show. We are going to uh, check out some pretty interesting StatCast moments from Yankees, Twins, and Diamondback Rockies, and look ahead to some of the Division Series. Have you enjoyed the two wildcard games so far? I mean, they've been pretty exciting. They've been bananas. They've been awesome. I'm like, I'm completely in favor of keeping the one game format forever. I know it's not quote unquote like the right way to decide a winner. I don't even care. These have been like really fascinating games to watch. Totally. Great, great baseball. A lot of just like interesting subplots. Um, it's uh, it's been a blast. If the rest of October is like this, uh, it's going to be a great October. It's going to be fantastic. I do think we have to make one point though. Everybody's talking about bullpenning, which we've talked about on the show as well. And while like, the four wildcard starters have combined to throw seven and a third innings, which is insane. There's not really bullpenning if your starting pitcher is getting lit up and just get you know gets one out like Luis Severino does. Bullpenning is if like I don't know Josh Tomlin is scoreless through four and a third and you take him out because you don't like the odds after that. Right? This For isn't sure. that. Yeah. Also, and the other thing is like the Yankees is the only the only bullpen that's pitched well. Right. <laughs> the bullpen has, right. has gotten shelled. So this actually isn't necessarily like uh, been a great advertisement for, for bullpenning. Uh, and now in the next couple of days, we're going to see a lot of really good starting pitchers. We'll get to that more in a second. But I think maybe first we can go over the, the wild card games in a little more detail. Yeah. I mean, let's let's quickly look back at Yankees Twins, which is a pretty fun game. I mean, Severino getting uh, blown up in the first inning was not what anybody expected. Uh, Yankees. As you said, the Yankees were the only like really good bullpen we've seen. The Yankees had the 60, 6-0, 60 hardest thrown pitches in that game. Uh, they averaged 97.1 miles an hour on their fastball. The Twins did not have a single pitch that was thrown harder than 97 miles an hour even. I, maybe that's more about the Twins than the Yankees. I guess it says a little bit about both. Uh, but I found that to be really interesting. There were five, four different Yankees, uh, Severino, Chapman, Conley, and Green, who all threw harder than any Twins pitcher did. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the the Yankees bullpen right now with that the the velocity they have coming out of there, they're they're once they got through that game, they're they're well quit. This is this Indian series is going to be fascinating. And did you remember where Chapman had a brief like slump? Kind of midway yeah. through the season. That seems over with now. His final pitch of the game, 103.7 miles an hour. It was the fastest of the StatCast postseason era. Let's just take a listen to that really quickly. Here's the 0-2 to Polanco. Struck him out swinging. Ball game over. Yankees win. The Yankees win. So Chapman owns the 58 hardest pitches that we've tracked in October over the last three seasons. He has 98 of the top 100. Uh, the other two are from Noah Syndergaard two years ago. It's not surprising. Like We have a Chapman filter on yeah. our website. Uh, but I, I still think it's just really interesting the way velocity has increased in the game. He is still, you know, quote unquote, the man in that department. Yeah, and he seems to like the, the fact that he sort of rebounded sort of just the Yankees bullpen looked maybe a little vulnerable when he looked a little vulnerable, you know, in August. But now that he looks like Chapman again, the Yankees bullpen is, well, it's 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 formidable. And that's and that's if Dylan Batances like looks like Dylan Batances again too. He didn't even pitch in this game. Uh, I think the hero of this game was probably David Robertson, who came in. He threw 52 pitches, and I found this really interesting. 34 of those pitches, that's 65%, were curveballs. And when I saw that at first, I had to go look. I'm like, is that possibly right? That's a lot of curveballs. Um, the 65% curveballs is the second highest of any reliever who threw 25 total pitches in a game this year. And I think the top four on this list is pretty interesting because they're both about to face off. Uh, Cody Allen of Cleveland threw 72% in the game in June, and then Robertson. And then Cody Allen threw a game 62%, and then Robertson back with the White Sox, 61%. 
So these are two guys who don't exactly like they can throw hard, sure, uh, but they've got a lot of bendy pitches too that really come out. Yeah, and it was it was interesting. It was it's what I found interesting was Robertson's career high in innings pitched, um, which I think was th- I can't remember if it was three or three and a third, but his previous high was two and a third innings three weeks ago, which surprised me in September too. Like for Dave Robertson in, with expanded rosters, it was on September 11th against the, the, the Rays in one of those games at City Field. But like for, for him to throw his career high in innings in a September roster game, a little bit odd, but still amazing performance. He, he's the, 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 the hero of that game for the Yankees. I can honestly say I have no recollection of that September game you're talking about. So maybe I was on vacation. It's interesting. Uh, Robertson threw 42% curves with the White Sox, 49% with the Yankees. And the Yankees are kind of at the forefront now of the, I don't know, are we calling it the curveball revolution? I guess that's what it kind of feels like with them. And, uh, you know, he's a great example of that. So we'll get back to the Yankees in a second because they are moving on to face Cleveland. Um, but first, the wild card game in the National League, that got off to a really interesting start because uh, John. John Gray did not look like he was going to have it, and you know he didn't. But it ended up being kind of a wild game. Diamondbacks eleven, Rockies eight, which I guess is exactly the outcome you would expect between these two teams in one of those parks. Yeah, it, it also it, it proved my theory that Chase Field uh, produces the most entertaining type of baseball. I, I think I think you get the widest variety of types of games at Chase Field because it's like it's not quite as extreme as Coors Field, where like every game feels like a slugfest, but it has slugfest pop- possibilities. It gets you homers. It also gets you triples. Uh, Chase Field to me is is the most fun place to watch. You're going to get the you're, you're most likely to get a wide variety of outcomes at Chase Field, especially with uh, Rodney closing out the game for you because he's always a blast to watch. Uh, the Diamondbacks had four triples last night. The postseason record is five, done twice by the 1903. I don't even know if they were the Red Sox at that point. The Americans, I think they were the Americans. Yeah, so it's been a while, is the point. And uh, so four triples last night in one game, and this goes to one of your favorite fun facts of the year. The Blue Jays had five triples this entire season, which is amazing. <laughs> and uh, the Diamondbacks had four just last night. Uh, there were, and they weren't just like any kind of triple. They were really interesting triples, you know. Uh, Kendall Marte had two triples, uh, 11.1 seconds from home to third, and then 11.2 seconds from home to third. One of those was the second fastest uh, in the three years we've ever tracked for the Diamondbacks. Uh, and then the second one, the 11.26, was the second fastest of the year for Arizona. So he basically was the fastest uh, home to third guy for Arizona uh, this year and, and also for the last couple of years. And then Archie Bradley. Now, we're going to talk about a pitcher tripling. Here's your opportunity. Did you get it out of the way? Uh, well, speaking of those, you, you mentioned before the Blue Jays had five triples all year. As I noted on Twitter on Sunday, Luis Perdomo hit his fourth triple of the year. So Luis Perdomo had four triples this year. The Blue Jays had five. That was my favorite stat of the year. But uh, Luis Perdomo, the pitcher king of triples, but uh, Archie Bradley uh, entered his way into the conversation with the first ever relief pitcher triple in postseason history. This may be where we all need to talk about you know process versus outcome for a second because everybody was really, really confused that Archie Bradley was hitting in that situation, right? It, it was a weird managerial because he, he came in with two outs in the previous inning, so it was an obvious double switch situation when he was clearly could have come up in the eighth so he ended up letting uh, jeff mathis who's not a strong hitter and then the pitcher hitting back to back and they had three catchers you know it's not like they there could have been a double switch situation you could have just pinch hit for mathis and it worked out clearly it just i don't know it was, it was very confusing how we got to that point it was also <laughs> i mean archie bradley a star quarterback in high school so obviously a great athlete so to me before i even looked at his career hitting line uh I was like, well, you know, he, he looks like he has an idea of what he's doing at the plate, and it wouldn't shock me if he's a pretty good hitter because he's a great athlete. You know, he was a recruit to play football at Oklahoma. So only after his triple did I go in and look up 
Six for 61 in his career as a batter. He used to be a starter, so he actually had some at-bats. Six for 61 with zero extra base hits. This was his first extra base hit at the major league level. And did did you hear how loud that place got? let's Let's take a minute. Let's listen to what this thing sounded like. Runners take their leads at first and second. Fly ball. Left center field. That ball's going to be in the gap. Archie Bradley, are you kidding me? He's going for third, and he's in with a slide. It can only happen in the wild card game. <laughs> An 098 hitter, career. Archie Bradley gets a slider from Nishek and splits the gap. And look at the hustle by Bradley. So Archie Bradley, I mean, is he going to hit again the next time around? Perhaps my favorite thing about his triple, uh, and not just his his scream when he got to third base, um, was his smooth pop-up slide. He looked like someone who has done this before. Like You almost feel like Archie Bradley in his spare time is practicing, like, you know, I'm going to get this moment. Because all the time you see, like, experienced position players botch pop-up slides and come off the base and get, like, tagged. He had, like, the smoothest pop-up slide I think I've ever seen. So Archie Bradley, uh, very impressive. There were seven pitcher triples this year. That's the eighth. Uh, Luis Perdomo had four of them. Somehow Jeremy Hellickson had one when I looked this up. I don't remember that happening. Uh, Jake Arrieta had one, I believe. But I want to bring I want to bring up the, the final triple of the night for the D-backs, which was A.J. Pollock, which it was an 8-7 game. And what was interesting to me, what set up A.J. Pollock's triple, because with one out in the bottom of the eighth, J.J. Martinez came up and he hit a ball deep in the hole. And when he hit it, I was like, oh, the double play, end of the inning. And Trevor Story turned it pretty quickly. It wasn't hit that hard, so there was a chance – Trevor Story turned it, flipped second, LeMahieu throws to first, and J.D. Martinez beat it easily. And I was really surprised because I don't think of J.D. Martinez as being that fast. And I looked it up, sure enough, 4.21 seconds to first base, his fastest home to first time of 2017. Previous best was uh, 4.28. He had a sprint speed of 28.6 feet per second on the play. His season average on on max effort sprint speed was 26.8. Feet per second, so slightly below average. The major league yeah. average is twenty-seven feet. So he, I mean, it just it just cools. It just goes to show it's a way we can quantify like adrenaline of the postseason. That these guys, they they find the extra gear. Like we can now show you exactly that he finds after this long season, eighth inning of a playoff game, he runs as fast as he's run all season to keep out of the double play. Jake Lamb follows that up with a single. Pollock hits a triple to make it ten to eight. Jeff Mathis gets a bunt single to make it. Uh, sorry, uh, ten to seven. Jeff Mathis bunt single makes eleven seven. And if you're a Diamondbacks fan or a Diamondbacks player, eleven seven with Fernando Rodney coming in is feeling a lot more comfortable <laughs> than eight seven. If sure, if he gave, he gave up a run, yeah. Uh, and the D-backs won eleven eight. That was my favorite moment of the game was seeing JD Martinez just being able to like being able to quantify that that. Uh, that extra gear that he found in that moment. I'm, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because Charlie Blackman did a very similar thing. Charlie Blackman laid down a bun. Uh, the Rockies were down 6-4 in the top of the seventh, one out. Luke Corey was on third. And, you know, usually I'm very anti-bunt, but this was, I thought, was a good bunt because it wasn't a sacrifice. Like, the goal was not to give himself up. Uh, and he got the run home. But what I thought was interesting about this, 3.61 home to first. That was his fastest time of the year. It was actually the fastest time we've ever tracked by a Rocky. Right. So uh, that's exactly goes to what you're saying. I also I heard some complaints on Twitter. Uh, you know, he's an MVP candidate. Why is he bunting? Well, he's a different player on the road versus a lefty, right? Versus lefties on the road, his weighted on base average is 315. 
league average, basically. But compare that to what he is at home versus righties. 5'11". He is a completely different player, like in different situations. You can't just assume it's one size uh, fits all for these guys. Yeah, I mean, Blackman was sort of the, the, the home row dynamic was probably most at play, I think, for him last night in that game because, like, he just didn't – he didn't – really do anything i mean that that was his biggest contribution was that was that that button and he did, did not really hit the ball hard did not look that great at the plate all right well the wildcard games were a blast let's uh, look ahead to some of the division series uh before we move on i want to take a minute to tell you about the mlb pipeline podcast which focuses on all things draft and prospect related mlb pipelines draft and prospect gurus jim callis and jonathan mayo join tim mcmaster each week to talk about what's going on in the universe of mlb's future stars last week jim and jonathan drafted rookies i think will have the biggest impact this postseason and then looked back at their preseason playoff prediction before debating updated World Series picks. To hear all that and more, search for MLB Pipeline and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and click subscribe. And uh, speaking of preseason predictions, I think you and I both have our World Series teams active, right? I chose, I thought it was going to be Cubs over Astros. And I, do- said, I dodged over Astros. All right, so we're alive. We're both still alive there. I mean, this is the the eight best, I think it's hard to argue the eight best teams are left. And that's that's great. These are four really, really exciting series. Uh, so let's start with uh, with the ALDS, Cleveland and the Yankees. And um, there's a couple of interesting things happening here, and I think most notably the rotations probably on both sides. Uh, I was a little surprised to see that Severino is not going to start until potentially game four for the Yankees. I mean, obviously he didn't throw that many pitches the other night. I didn't think he'd come back for game one, but they've announced uh, Sonny Gray first, Sabathia second, Tanaka third, Severino fourth. And I'm surprised by that. Severino is Probably still their best pitcher. That terrible wildcard game aside. Well, I think there's there's two there's two factors at play here. One of which is um, Tanaka has been a different pitcher home and on the road. So I could see why they wanted to hold him back for Game Three to pitch at home. It's like I I, I wish I'd looked the numbers up before the game, but trust me, before the podcast, it is true. It's 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 night and day. So I, it's pretty clear to me that they wanted to. Um, Ideally, have Tanaka pitch at home, and they have that. Now, the question would have been, otherwise, if you, ha- if you assume that, then it's okay, you're going to bring Severino back in game three, which would have been basically, I mean, in game, game two, two on Friday, yeah. which basically would have been two days rest. Granted, he only threw, like, 25 pitches on Tuesday. Um, so you could argue that, like, it was almost like a glorified throw day for him. Uh, but Severino is in way uncharted territory for innings pitched. In his career, he's at he had 193 regular season innings. I think he ever gone much past like I think 150. Um, and whatever you want to say about like the Verducci effect and whether or not big jumps in innings, I, I'm not getting into the science of it. But like it's pretty clear he's in uncharted territory. And the Yankees probably are thinking like we don't we've already sort of like messed up his his um, not messed up. We sort of like really pushed him more than we would have ever expected to this year. And they're expecting to go make a deep playoff run. So asking him to come back on essentially two days rest is, is really, it might be asking too much, frankly. Fair I think, I think that there's, 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 there's definitely some, some logic here as far as I'm concerned. Now the other side is interesting too, because Trevor Bauer is starting in game one, not Corey Kluber and not Carlos Carrasco. It's Trevor Bauer first, Kluber second, Carrasco third, uh, and then Josh Tomlin fourth. And that's, that's surprising because Kluber is probably going to win the AL Cy Young this year. And it almost feels like a, a matter of, and there's reasoning behind this and we'll, we'll explain, but it almost feels like a matter of getting a little too cute, right? Like you have the best pitcher in the league, throw him in the first game. I mean, this is a good Yankees team. I don't think you can look ahead to the, to the next series, which just seems like maybe they're trying to do a little bit. Yeah. I, th- I mean, t- to, to the Indians credit, they're clearly, you know, have a thought process you know they're very like analytics oriented club, so I'm sure there's a lot, there's been a lot of you know real thought put into this decision, and they're going with it because like they're really opening themselves up to a lot of 
criticism if this does not, you know, like no one would criticize them if they started Kluber in game one and lost the series. But like if if they lose game one and end up losing, the, if they lose game one and pitch, Bauer pitches poorly and they lose the series, like they're going to get second guessed for a long time. When, and it's also very much about the schedule. You know, they want to keep Kluber on something like his regular rest. Well, all this needs is like one rain out and everything gets messed up. And it's not like, you know, rain in October in Cleveland or New York is a thing that can happen. So we have some interesting stats here. Uh, and these are numbers versus the the starting lineup that the Yankees had in the wild card game. And that's probably a, a good estimation of what they'll start in the, in the division series. So Trevor Bauer against those guys and all the numbers I'm about to say are obviously just from 2015 because we don't have the data from before that. Uh, 296 batting average against and a 306 expected batting average against. So what that says is he's basically earned his approximately 300 batting average against the same thing for weighted on base. Uh, He's allowed a 361 weighted on base uh, and a 373 expected weighted on base. So he's been slightly worse than an average pitcher. Uh, No real, you know, good luck or bad fortune in either direction. You know, Corey Kluber against those exact same guys, 109 plate appearances, a 179 batting average, and a 229 expected batting average. So maybe he's gotten a little fortunate, but it doesn't matter because even like his expected is still way better uh, than Bauer. And what I found interesting as well was uh, Carrasco actually hasn't been as great against these guys as I would have expected. 300 batting average, a 242 expected. So maybe he's gotten a little unfortunate. And as we talked about on our last show, we're really trying to get away from just the outcomes in these small samples because they don't really mean that much. But if we can get into the real you know quality of contact skill, uh, hopefully that should tell us a little something more because obviously it's an out if you crush a line drive to center field, but the pitcher didn't really do a great job there. Yeah, and I, I did even a, a slightly uh, deeper look at some of the numbers we had on how Yankees hitters performed against pitchers like Bauer, just to get a little bit of a larger sample size. So we're but, talking about, when I say like, I mean in terms of pitch velocity and movement. So the comps for Bauer in terms of pitch velocity uh, and movement are uh, Joe Biagini, Zach Wheeler, Tom Kohler, uh, Justin Verlander and Jeff Hoffman, just to give you a sense. These are the five, the five like highest comps for him. Um, the one that jumped out to me, Aaron Judge against the pitchers like Bauer in his career, an average exit velo of 108.4 miles per hour. Granted, we're talking about five batted balls here, but like that's an average exit velocity. So we're, I mean, there's an indication again, small sample. We're, this is performance, not results. He is absolutely barreled up the ball when he's faced these guys. Expected weight on base of six six eighteen. So I'm it's I'm very curious to see how Aaron Judge does against Trevor Bauer. On the flip side, um, Chase Headley and Brett Carter. Chase Headley, I'm not even sure will be in the lineup. Uh, expected weight on base of two thirty five against the similar pitchers to Bauer. Uh, Brett Gardner who will almost certainly be in the lineup two seventy five. But those are those are sort of the the extremes on the uh, from the Yankee lineup. But the Judge one obviously really jumped out to me. Yeah, that that's insane. You said expected weight on base of six eighteen. The league average is something like three twenty. Uh, so that's better. Yes, yeah. that's, that's better. This seems to be the series that will m- mostly. Of all of them, I think, really get into the bullpens, though. Right? I mean, they've got good starters on both sides, but, I mean, these are the bullpen teams. And that's sort of, I mean, the 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 Indians are are basically, I think they're sort of planning game one to be a bullpen game. That's what, I mean, they, they still kept Clevenger and... Um, Salazar. Salazar on the roster, essentially, to be relievers. I mean, Dan Otero didn't make the... No. Didn't make their, they, Zach McAllister didn't make it. And who was the other? Oh, Nick Goody. That's what it was. Those three guys combined for, I think it was 176 strikeouts and 175 innings, and they didn't make the roster. <laughs> And it's, I mean, I was, I was talking about this with some of the days, like looking at what, what the Yankees faced against the Twins, and, and I wasn't sure if there was a, any single pitcher on the Twins wildcard roster who would make the Indians playoff wow. roster. When you consider when you consider role, like are you talking about just relievers? And I mean, like you don't think would, like Jose Barrios would get in there somewhere? He's the one guy who I think would, because even Irvin Santana wouldn't crack the rotation. No. 
and you, then you probably wouldn't even put him in the bullpen. So Barrios is the only guy I think would have a, be in the discussion of cracking. That's how good the Indians pitching staff is. That is uh, that is a wild thought, and I think you're right. Um, so I guess we should do a prediction, right? We're here. Let's, we're talking about these teams. I mean, they're both really great teams. I feel like all, all four of these series are going to go five games because they're all – I say Cleveland three, Yankees two. I don't know. I, I don't have a good feeling about this one. Um, I kind of think – the Trevor Bauer thing is going to come back to bite them. I think the Yankees are going to win the series. I think that the Yankees are very well positioned to go all the way, just based on their pitching staff and Aaron Judge hitting like Aaron Judge. So the other ALDS that's going to start is Houston and Boston. And I think this is the one that we were uh, most interested in before the, the wild card games, because these are two really good teams. We saw them face each other at the end of the season. And I think the story of this series is going to be the ballparks in some way, because if you look at Houston, uh, you know, a, a very short left field and right field. If you look at Boston, obviously the green monster. So there's uh, there's the potential for some, uh, I don't want to say cheap home runs, but, you know, you don't have to be Aaron Judge to hit home runs in these parks, right? And so we, got to, we have some numbers to support that. Now, for example, Minute Maid Park has the shortest average home run distance in baseball. Uh, the average home run is 400 feet. The longest is, is 417 in Colorado. In Houston, it's 391 feet. And I think we've talked about, like, Marwin Gonzalez home runs on this show a couple of times. If you hit it, like, right down the line in left field, you don't have to do much. Um, we've also looked at uh, softly hit home runs and we've defined a hard hit ball as one that's 95 miles an hour or harder. So I believe like 96% of home runs this year in the majors were hard hit home runs. And if you look at the ballparks that had the most softly hit home runs, number one, Minute Maid Park with 23 and the second place is Cincinnati with 14. So that's a big deal. I think. Yeah. It's, it's, it really, it adds cause it sort of can give you, it, you know, it, it gives you the opportunity of having some of these like unlikely like hero moments where, you know, you have your Bucky Dents who just sort of just like, you know, cork one down the line and it's, Oh, that's a, that's a home run. In fact, when you're facing a pitcher like Chris sale, I'd argue that like, it's probably not a bad strategy to basically be like, I'm coming up here just trying to like, Hit a lazy fly to left field and over the. Bat. I agree. Is, is your other option like you're going to string together five straight hits against Chris Sale? That seems unlikely. So uh, I, I think you're totally right there. Four of the top ten least likely home runs this year, based on expected batting average, came in either Boston or Houston. I, I thought that was, and we talked about some of these. Uh, Lorenzo Cain, I remember this one. He poked this one just around the pesky ball, projected 302 feet. That's a home run. The expected batting average in that was .019, and that's not expected home run percentage. That's batting average. So less than 2% of the time, a ball hit at 90 miles an hour, 39 degrees launch angle, becomes a hit, and he got a home run out of that because of the pesky pole. But the thing is, at least the pesky pole, the pesky pole juts out. So there's a very small window to get a cheap home run over there. Like right. It juts out pretty pretty straight out, whereas in in, uh, in Minute Maid, and what's interesting is it's not just the Crawford boxes. Right field is pretty short, too. So you basically have – it's a weird – because it's the dead center, it's actually pretty deep. But down the lines, it's it's got, almost got like a modern-day polo grounds thing it's, going on. It's very weird because we're talking about like cheap home runs, but it also played very much like a pitcher's park this year. And so it's got a very bizarre effect going on. Uh, and you know, like the other ones on the top ten list, Jake Marizic, uh, George Springer, Josh Reddick, all in Houston, hit some very, let's say, uh, favorable home runs for them. And then you also had an interesting stat here about you know not striking out so much. These teams had high numbers of, of contact. Uh, uh, so the Astros had the highest rate of contact in baseball. 79% uh, contact per swing. The Red Sox were third. So if you're not uh, a fan of strikeouts, I don't know, maybe these are the teams to watch. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the Astros, you know, finishing second in home runs and last in strikeouts is kind of remarkable in this day and age. Yeah. And um, it's, I'm ex- I'm actually going to be in Fenway for games three and four, or games in three and potentially four of this series, which I'm really looking forward to. You know, the, the David Price factor looms over this, sort of adds this whole, 
you know, yeah. level of intrigue. Their bullpen's like, been really good. Yeah, and it's you know when they add Addison Reed, Addison Reed's been very good for a couple of years now. Kimbrel, yeah, Carson Smith's back. It's it's and it's this this might be the most interesting series to me. Astros in four. I'm gonna regret that. I think. Um, the Red Sox offense was surprisingly underwhelming this year, and I, yeah. there's no. I mean, like obviously, I'm gonna say this, and then of course, you know, um, you know. Xander Bogart's going to go and hit, you know, four home runs. Um, but the, the the offense just didn't really do enough for me to have the confidence against the Astros. I think the Astros will win, will win the series. Yeah, the Red Sox had the fewest home runs in the American League. Uh, Betts didn't have the same kind of year. Pedroia is playing through pain. Bogart took a step back. So uh, I agree with you on that. So let's move to the National League. Uh, this one, it comes in the uh, Nationals. And I think the thing here is just rotation questions, right? Arietta and Scherzer are both dealing with... Uh, hamstring injuries and and at, at the moment we still don't actually know when Scherzer is going to pitch I assume it's game three we already know Arietta is going to be in game four so for the Cubs it's going to be Hendricks first Lester Quintana and then Arietta for the Nationals we assume Strasburg then Gio Gonzalez Scherzer probably third and, and Roark fourth we don't know that for sure yet but that seems like a likely guess at this point yeah and the, the Scherzer thing is I mean that kind of could loom over the whole uh, postseason because I mean if it's lingering or he aggravates it they're not – they're just – I mean, he's really good. They're just not the same team without him. And the fact that, like – I mean, it's pretty obviously unfortunate for them to have him think, sort of get this injury in the, his last – like basically tune-up start. And now, you know, he, he didn't throw a bullpen when he was supposed to the other day. And now see, there's, they probably – by the time this – I think we're – Dusty Baker's meeting the media while we're recording probably, this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you know, it'll be moved. But it seemed pretty clear that Strasburg was going to start game one and that, you know, Scherzer might be might be compromised. Yeah, and that's uh, it's not just Scherzer, too, because Bryce Harper, you know, missed all that time with a knee injury, and he made it back at the end of the year, the last week, but he only looked okay. You know, he, I think he had, like, three singles and 20 plate appearances or something like that. So this was supposed to be the year for the Nationals, and it just seems like, again, there's something happening. I mean, certainly if you want to get into the whole narrative of the postseason, this is definitely kind of has this, – this could be Steven Strasburg's moment. You know, this year, um, looking at starting pitchers – uh, low, lowest expected weight on base allowed. Max Scherzer was first uh, in the majors, 242. Um, behind him, Kluber, Sale, Kershaw, Paxton. Number six, Strasburg. I feel like Strasburg actually pitched like the ace this year that we always waited for, but like it didn't really get the attention that maybe it's, you would think otherwise. It's tough when you're not the best pitcher on your own team, and it's tough when you have another pitcher who – uh, do some surface level stats people are like i think people are pushing Gio gonzalez now as as an ace and i like Gio gonzalez he's been a pretty competent starter for years but i want to look at some of his numbers because i, I want to figure out like what is he now last year he had a 457 era not so great this year a 296 era i mean that's that's a pretty huge step forward but when you look at the numbers behind it i think this is interesting uh strikeout rate was identical 22 percent in both years he actually walked more this year and the home run rate was identical and that's me that doesn't seem like a guy who took a huge step forward but um, we do have you know expected weighted on base, so that's a really good quality of contact stat. So last year, 317 expected on ba- weighted on base. This year, 293. So I will buy that he did a better job of limiting contact. I don't know if I buy that he's now like you know the third ace. I still look at him as like a pretty solid mid rotation pitcher. Yeah, I mean, he's he's his whole career. He's sort of had like he's mixed in a couple of like elite type years. I mean, he's gotten Cy Young votes before. Uh, I don't. He's not a to me. He's not a guy that if you're the opposing team, you're not like. Oh, we're facing Geo tonight. We're like Strasburg kind of has that aura when he's on, and I think that you know after the whole thing with the shutdown five years ago, and the Nats still have never won a playoff series. That like Strasburg can sort of rewrite some of the the narrative around him if he kind of pitches the way he's been pitching, and he can sort of like make up for maybe having a, a compromised Scherzer in the rotation. But I mean, 
the the Cubs kind of quietly because of all the hype last year, and like you know, obviously winning the World Series, like they kind of quietly were really dominant in the second half of oh, the yeah. season and uh, the second best record in the in the in majors post break. They had the second most barrels in the National League this year behind only the Dodgers. So it's this is a team that can really slug and. It's this is it's a it's a fascinating matchup. You're you're totally right about the Cubs narrative because not only did they get off to a pretty disappointing start, Milwaukee hung around. So the Cubs didn't actually clinch this division until like the last week of the season. But yeah, in the second half things really turned around. Like Kyle Schwarber was brutal in the first half. He got sent back to the minors. Uh, he basically slugged like you expected him to slug for the last couple months of the season. Rizzo and Bryant were fine in the first half, and they both played a little better down the stretch. So this is actually a pretty dangerous lineup. And, uh, you know, my, my question here is, when you go back to the game one starter for the Cubs, Kyle Hendricks, how do you feel about Kyle Hendricks? Because, right, you know, last year he had this phenomenal season. Uh, and this year, like all the other Cubs starters, velocity was down. We figured it was just because of a big, long season last year. First half, 409 ERA. 322 expected on weight on base, but in the second half, a 219 ERA, uh, 282 expected weighted on base. He looked, actually looked really, really good. He is like the opposite of everything in modern pitching, like the soft tossing righty. Yeah. It, it doesn't exist no. as a classic <laughs> pitcher really anymore because he's not just like, you know, it's not just he has a below average fastball. It's like a way below. He throws like 85. <laughs> it's, well, he, he throws like 88 when he's good, and then when he was throwing 85 earlier in the but season. Still, it's still, I mean, it's still like it's – you just don't see guys like that succeed. So he's he's to me he's fascinating to watch. I mean, sometimes people throw out, oh, like you know, Greg Maddox did it, but like, Greg Maddox at his prime was actually had an above average fastball. Absolutely. You know, like you know, for for the time, you know, he was throw, he was throwing ninety two, ninety three when like starting pitchers were throwing ninety one, ninety two. Now it's like Hendricks is not anywhere close to an average fastball, at least in terms of velocity. Yeah, I think the matchup I'm really most interested in this series is going to be um, Trey Turner versus Wilson Contreras and John Lester. Obviously, everybody in the world knows about John Lester's issues holding runners on, and um, Lester has actually had a pretty rough end of the season. He had an ERA over five for the last two months. But when we see, uh, you know, Trey Turner, Trey Turner is obviously, he's got elite speed. We have him as the second fastest shortstop behind only Ahmed Rosario. I think he's in like the top 15 overall of every player. Uh, stole 40-something bases despite missing six yeah, weeks. He set, he, set, he set the Nets, the franchise record for stolen bases despite missing six weeks. Right, which is which is really impressive. And then obviously Wilson Contreras ha- has a cannon. Like when I think of the best throwing arms behind the plate in baseball, I think of him and I think of Gary Sanchez, right? So I think... When everybody was worried about, oh, David Ross is leaving, what's John Lester going to do? Well, Wilson Cacharius was a pretty uh, you know capable replacement back there. So Lester is supposed to start game two, and I expect that that's going to be a huge story there, is can the canon of Contreras keep Turner from running wild? And I will say, I remember this from last year when the Dodgers played the Cubs. The Dodgers would take these huge leads on Lester and then just not go. Like, if you're going to be 20 feet off the base, just go, my man. Like, yeah, I mean, the same thing with Indians. We expect it to be such a, you know, because the Indians actually, the 2016 Indians stole a fair amount of bases. So it was like, oh, the Indians are going to run on Lester, but they didn't really. And actually, they when they tried, they got thrown out a few times. So it actually ended up being um, the head games of like John Lester versus base runners is, is always a fascinating subplot. And we'll uh, we'll see it in game two, particularly if, I, if Turner gets on base. And our final NLD, oh wait, we have a prediction there. Cubs and Nationals. I feel... I guess the Scherzer thing throws a wrench in everything. I think I like the Nationals better, but I'm going to say Cubs in five. Um, I think the Nationals are going to get off the schneid okay. when, they, when their first when their first series. Great, I think that's one we disagree on. Uh, and then Dodgers Diamondbacks is going to be the last one. And I think this is really interesting um, because I think the Diamondbacks are probably a better team than people give them credit for. I think the, the rotation has really been fantastic. 
But some of the decisions in the wildcard game have thrown the rotation into a little bit of an uncertain state because Zach Greinke started and then Robbie Ray came in after him. And Robbie Ray has been fantastic. So now it sounds like unofficially, because we don't know yet, uh, Taiwan Walker might start the first game. And when I was thinking about the rotation like a week ago, he was the guy I thought wasn't going to be in the rotation at all. I, I thought it would be Ray, Greinke, uh, Zach Godley, and Patrick Corbin. And now it sounds like Walker is going to be starting game one. So that's... They have a really good rotation, but now I'm, now I'm a little less sure about it, I think. Yeah, I mean, to me, the biggest um, concern with the D-backs, and they play the Dodgers tough this year, but like they're, they're, they're in terms of bullpen, they are the clear, like, weakest bullpen of the, of the teams remaining. And when you're going to try, if you're going to pull starters early and be forced to pull starters early, like last night, even the wildcard game, even when they used Robbie Ray, they still, you like, you got to the bullpen and just sort of like, like, this is. This is it. Yeah. Like, and even Bradley gave up a couple of home runs. Yeah, I mean, Bradley's, I mean, to me, the wild card for them is actually Jimmy Scherfey, who is another, like, he's a guy that could come in and maybe throw 70, 70% breaking balls because he's got a ridiculous breaking ball. But that's, it's, there's not a, there's not a lot there. And I, that's my concern with them is like when you, you're going to be asking them to get four innings from their bullpen. And I love Fernando Roddy more than almost anyone, but. You know what my biggest surprise was in the wildcard game? Was that Rodney gave up one run. Because I expect Rodney to either give up zero runs or like nine runs. There's, there's very rarely an in-between there. So to me, that's – I mean, that's what's the, the – and that's sort of why they're really behind the eight ball because they don't – they're going to have to start their third – third at best, third best starter in, in game one. And you could argue that, you know, Walker, whomever is even in their third best starter. So not having – Probably Granky or maybe the bring Ray back for game two. Ray, I think Ray probably game two, Granky game three. You might argue that the biggest winner of the wild card game was actually the Dodgers. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, this hurt the biggest strength of the Diamondbacks. Uh, and the Dodgers have some rotation questions too. Kershaw is going to start game one. And I think for the rest of time, we're going to hear about, you know, what's Kershaw's deal in the postseason, some of which is valid and some of which is not. Uh, Rich Hill, game two, most likely. Darvish, game three. And then we don't know yet about Alex Wood or potentially Hyunjin Ryu in game four. Uh, but these are obviously, you know, the Dodgers have Kershaw, and then they've also got a ton of different guys who are valuable in different ways. Kenta Maeda might come out of the bullpen. Um, so I think that's interesting. The Dodgers actually have three of the top six left-handed starters in baseball based on expected weighted on base. Sale number one, then Kershaw, then Paxton, Hill, Keigel, Wood. Now, I actually kind of like Wood better as a reliever. His velocity dropped kind of a lot. Like, he's not a guy I want to see going five or six. I guess I don't care if he starts or not. I just... He's the guy you want facing 10 batters, yeah. right? And then you get him out of there. And the Dodgers have a lot of guys like that. You know, not, not Kershaw, obviously, but I feel like they are going to be another team that is going to patch together, uh, you know, eight or nine batters at a time because I trust Kenley Jansen. He's fantastic. Brandon Morrow had a great year. And then after that, even in the Dodgers bullpen, it's like, do you trust Tony Watson, Singrani, Pedro Baez? I mean, well, that's why, I mean, with, you know, we talked, you know, the question is who's going to be the first pitcher, starting pitcher of the playoffs to face a batter a third time? Because right. we have not had it yet. Oh, for four. <laughs> not by And I think, time. you know, Kershaw is obviously one of the few guys you really trust to do it um, on a consistent basis. And if, you know, if you're Dave Roberts, you're basically hoping like, even if Kershaw gives me six, it saves me for game two. I basically have my entire, not just bullpen, entire pitching staff available for game two. Because, you know, like put Kershaw on my game three starter aside. It's like I can pitch anyone on my staff in game two. And then you, you can talk about the situation you have where it's like, okay, maybe Alex Wood pitches to 10 batters. Rich Hill pitches to 10 batters. You don't have to worry about, um, you know, starter relievers as much. You know, this that's the situation. That's why you need you, where the, the advantage of having someone like Kershaw as much as anything is like he frees up your pitcher usage in game two. Cause that game two is like the one t you have the back-to-back -back game there, you know, then you get the off day and that's where you, the, the playoff bullpen management 
you know, so different from the regular season because you get all those extra off days. But Kershaw gives you length in game one. That really frees you up in game two to really kind of play matchups and have a really short leash. Yeah, I looked at Kershaw versus the wild card Diamondback starting lineup, you know, assuming it would be, uh, it won't be the same because the lefty righties, but similar. And, uh, you know, 48 plate appearances. 156 batting average, 147 expected batting average. So he's been really good, and he's earned all of it. Uh, I also looked at Granke versus what a potential Dodgers lineup could be. So, you know, Bellinger, Grandel, Puig, etc. cetera. Uh, 116 plate appearances, 260 batting average, but a 306 expected batting average, which I think is interesting. Uh, you know, Puig has only had a 167 average against him, but a 348 expected batting average. I looked it up. He had some pretty hard-hit sack flies. Uh, and Seager against Granke. 545 batting average, 551 expected batting average. So he has earned pretty much all of that. And so that'll be pretty interesting. But I do think I don't want to sell the Diamondback short. And some of these guys like Zach Godley came out of nowhere and he was fantastic. Patrick Corbin had a pretty rough first half, but very much better in the second half. Although Dodgers have a lot of righty hitters too. So I'm not sure what they're actually going to do with that fourth spot. But I do like Zach Godley better than most, I think. Yeah, the, 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 to me, the, the, the interesting subplot here is the Diamondbacks have done a really good job of working the corners as a staff. Um, and I think probably some of this credit has to go to Jeff Mathis. I mean, they basically brought in Jeff Mathis because he's got a great reputation as a framer. The numbers say he's great as a framer. He's not a good hitter. But the fact that he played every day on a team that not I mean, that he was a starting catcher on a team that won like, what, 93 games or something? Something like that, yeah. Tells you he's doing something right and is adding value. Um, and the Diamondbacks had the highest um, – we're going to get really granular here because we went on, on pitches on the zone here. <laughs> the highest um, – Whiff per swing rate on non-borderline breaking balls below the zone by team. So they got whiffs out of the zone. Um, so they get pitches on the corners. They get swings out of the zone. And the Dodgers, on the flip side, had the second overall lowest overall swing rate and the lowest swing rate on out-of-zone pitches. Wait, wait. That first one. Highest whiff per swing rate on non-borderline breaking balls below the zone. What is the StatCast podcast for if not to get totally granular? <laughs> so basically, they're getting, they're getting chases on breaking balls out of the zone. And the Dodgers are basically the best team at not swinging at such pitches. And going back to what I was saying before about their bullpen, it's to me it's really about that the Dodgers wearing out the Diamondback starters and basically getting to that bullpen, you know, in the fifth, fourth or fifth inning because that's the the biggest. No team has a bigger gap between its starting pitchers and its bullpen than the Diamondbacks. And I'm not sure it's close. Like of the teams in the playoffs, like they've got a really good starting pitching staff. And the weakest bullpen. So, like, the gap there is so enormous. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, and we, we might have said that about Washington earlier, but they added Doolittle, they added Madsen, they added Kinsler. They, they've actually been pretty good in the second half. I think you're absolutely right. If there's a, you know, if you're going to pick a weakness for every team, I think for the Diamondbacks, it's easily the bullpen. And for and and for that reason, um, this is the one series I feel fairly confident about. And my pick, the rest of the series, I'm like, I don't know who's going to win. I feel somewhat confident the Dodgers are going to win the series for that reason. Dodgers in four. Um, I don't really like to pick games, but sure, four. So we've agreed on three of these four series. Then. Wait, wait, we agreed. I, we both had the Dodgers. Yeah, we both had the Astros. Okay, and I took the Nats, and you took the Cubs. And we both had Cleveland. No, no you the Yankees. Yankees. I, Yankees. I picked Cleveland. Okay, great. Well, that's good. I like to disagree with you sometimes. So that is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. We'll check back next week to see how our predictions are doing. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you then.